Well, hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate investing. I am your host, Michael Blanc, and uh, today we're going to talk about someone who has quit their jobs with real estate and, of course, started with single-family house investing and then shifted apartments. It's the same old story, but it's different every single time. So we're going to get into that as well. Before we do, just a reminder that Dealmaker Live is coming up July 16 to 17 in Dallas at the Hilton Anatole. That's where we had it last in person in 2019. Excited to be there as well. You you can grab tickets at dealmakerliveevent.com. It's going to be the multifamily event of the year, and I hope to see you there. Before we get into the show, let's bring on our co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? What's going on, Michael? How you doing? All right, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I want to talk a little bit about underwriting in these kinds of times because you know we're seeing people sharpen their pencil maybe a little bit too much to, where they kind of break off because they're trying to be a little aggressive to try to get deals done and they compromise and they do a little bit of here, a little bit of there. What are some of the aggressive underwriting assumptions that people should be cautious about? Yeah, so you're, you're going to see this more and more as the market tightens up. Specifically, what I think you're going to find is people out there are not, there's a couple metrics that you really want to pay attention to when you're vetting an operator. First off is their, their assumptions on their uh, natural rent growth. So there's, there's typically the rent growth that you're going to see in a, any real estate market on a pro forma is somewhere between one and a half to three and a half percent. And it's really easy to get better numbers if that is is on the high end, if they're 4% or 5%, because the market at the time, maybe it's in Phoenix or it's in Florida where they're actually getting that. And what I'm talking about is like when people renew their lease, they're getting a higher renewal rate, like 5% or 6%. If they're, mark, if they're putting in that in their assumptions, way too aggressive. One thing we always do, well, we're not doing, year one, we're taking that out completely, but... I love modeling in as far as padding a really high economic vacancy years one and two while you're doing your renovations. So that's the other thing that can be easily missed is you're looking at someone's underwriting and they're like, oh, they, they only model 10% economic vacancy. So 90% average occupancy economic. That's probably not realistic, especially if they've got, they got a construction project going on, there's units being turned, there's chaos. They don't really know how to run that asset right away. So you definitely want to look out for that out the gate. Other big, big one is the reversion cap rate. And that one can make the biggest impact on the IRRs that, that go into a deal. So you want to look out for how low are they going? What's, what's actually the market reversion cap rate? And that's the exit cap rate when you go to sell the property. Moving it just a tenth of a point can adjust their returns up or down significantly. So the way you find that if you're an operator like like us is you look at what the market's been trading at and then we try to go a minimum of 50 basis points over where the market's been trading. So if you're in a nicer area with a nicer vintage property, that cap rate's naturally going to be lower. As it gets a little bit more C-class, that's going to be towards the higher end. And then definitely it's based on the location as well. And so you as a passive investor or even active, you know, should be definitely watching that to make sure that's not too far off the rails because that, that makes a really big impact on everything. Yeah, that's that's really good because, you know, a lot of investors look at, they compare one deal to another and just look at the return. And that is not the way you look at, you know, deals. To return is a factor. The other one, of course, is the team behind it. 
And then when you get closer to a deal, the assumptions behind it. I mean, we've seen deals recently from other operators and great returns, but the assumptions are like, oh, that's a bit aggressive, isn't it? And for the reasons you just talked about, and, and unfortunately, uh, the investors aren't, aren't looking for that. They just see the pretty pictures and the nice numbers, and they're not looking at the assumptions behind it. But you have to be conservative right now in these, in these times, always have to be conservative. And some of those things are pretty, pretty aggressive. So with that, we're going to get into the, the show here with Philippe Schuligan, and he's a co-owner and general partner of 1,450 commercial multifamily units. He's been part of $70 million portfolios, and he's contributed to raising $21 million from investors. And his experience ranges from acquisitions and syndications to asset management. Uh, Philippe actually started his multifamily career in, in, in our, one of our programs, and it took him five months after joining the program to close an 80-unit deal in a partnership with us. And now uh, he's done several deals, obviously, since then. He's sharing his experience with other entrepreneurs, and he joined as a mentor in our mentoring organization where he's helping other students do their first deal and quit their job as well. Now, before that, he's a, he had a corporate job in the in the business jets aircraft industries, and he's been there for 20 years. And uh, he, so he's a former engineer, and he lives in New Jersey with his wife and two daughters. So let's get right into the show here with Philippe Schuligan. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts... Michael Block. Philippe, welcome to the show today. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. Well, my favorite French was on the phone finally. I've known you for a little while. Actually, we met you very early on. You actually met me at the house and, uh, and you were just getting started. And uh, man, you've had a fantastic journey from being a full-time investor now and actually being a mentor for an, an organization and helping students do the same thing you've had. But I, I want to kind of go back. So I, I just can't wait to get in your story because you've had some ups and downs. And I think sometimes we gloss over some of the downs. And in fact, almost everybody has downs, especially Garrett. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Everybody's got about down. But you know, we, we don't sometimes don't talk about it as much. And it seems from the outside in that everything is hunky-dory all the time when it actually is not. And everybody's been through rough times and it really shapes us into the person that we are today. So I wanna make sure we don't gloss over some of the challenges you've had because uh, I think people will find it uh, useful as well. But let's let's uh, wind the clock back a little bit, Philippe. I remember back, I don't know when it was, in 2017, I don't know when, when, when yeah. we first met. Yeah. And what was going on in your life where you were like, I wanna get into real estate when did you first start thinking real estate? It might not have been in apartment buildings. I don't even know exactly what you were thinking. But when did you first starting start thinking real estate and, and why? I first starting to think about real estate. I would say at the end at the end of 2015, early 2016, and and that everybody should try to to work on some side gigs. You know, I think now we're more in the gig economy. And uh, certainly, real estate is a good way to add additional income for people, build the legacy as well. And initially, I looked into single family and particularly uh, single family turnkeys uh, because, you know, I had a, a full-time job and it, it was hard to, to work, you know, do an additional job in, in parallel. Or at least that's what I thought. And so purchased a couple of uh, single family uh, houses and, uh, you know, very quickly, you know, I think the, the scaling you know, I realized it was hard to scale. And at the same time, you know, the issue of, uh, of you know, when you have a small portfolio, any vacancy becomes a problem. 
So that's that's when I pivoted and I, I started to look into uh, multifamily and I I met you. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people think single family house investing because that's what everybody does. That's what you see on on the on the shows and everybody's flipping. You hear about the Burr method, you know, all fine. And turnkey seems like the good solution because it's a passive investment in single family houses. But talk a little bit about experience about turnkeys because I want to make sure that because there's people listening, watching this stuff that make, oh yeah, turnkey is the next step for me and in, in more of a passive investment. Talk a little bit about your your investment, uh, your your experience with turnkeys. I think it was it's pretty good uh, overall. I think you know when, once you find a good uh, uh, provider, because I know I know there are some horror stories out there. But uh, you know I, I did my due diligence. You know I selected a couple of markets. Then you know in each market I met with two providers, and you know tried to get references like directly from the provider and from other people as well. You know like through bigger pockets and whatnot, and uh, you know I found a, a good reliable provider. And for my first acquisition, I went there, you know, take, took a look at the house. And basically, you know, it was a renovated house, you know, which that's the principle of the, the turnkey. And, and usually they, they put somebody in it as a, as a tenant and they sell you, you know, just have to sign the contract and start collecting the rent. You know, at least on, on paper, that's very appealing. Plus, it's a renovated house. But again, you know, like the, the downside is, you know, after a little while and actually, uh, it happened to me last year, you know, with COVID, my two turnkey properties, they they became vacant for six months. So took a hit there. But uh, yeah, that's that's how it is. And that's the, the concern with the smaller portfolio. I remember the turnkey thing quite a bit. So like when I first started in the industry, I was like, I was actually like selling some turnkey stuff like that. So I was kind of on the other side of it a little bit as well. But it was a lot of the investors we were finding were from actually from other countries as well, they were coming and they just wanted to invest in the US. Was that, I don't know how, you've been over here for a while, um, but was that, was it, were you looking at that also when you were out of the country and as a potential solution? Actually, no, because I came in the US 20 years ago, believe it or not. Oh my gosh. My, my accent <laughs> is very, uh, barely noticeable, I understand. Um, so no, I, I did not, I did not. And actually, I, you know, I spent most of my professional adult life in the US. And that's when, you know, I started to have some funds to to invest uh, when I was here really. So you had those two those two turnkeys. And so you decided hey, I can't scale like this and you decided to shift to to multifamily. So what was your how did you approach this? What was your plan and how did that progress? My plan was to number one, you know, not do this alone. So, you know, I take a course and that's how, you know, I looked at several courses back then and I found yours. And I remember um, initially I, I purchased the uh, syndicated deal analyzer, you know, just, you know, I wanted to gauge, you know, what kind of content you had to offer, you know, within a, a paying uh, service. And, you know, very quickly, you know, what appealed to me is that you also offer the opportunity to partner with you, you know, in case, you know, because obviously like syndication, means raising money. And I, I didn't really feel I had the network, uh, the time to be able to do that. So yeah, that's what, you know, that made a big difference for me to uh, uh, go ahead and, and uh, take your course, Michael. 
Yeah, so so you did get a course, which by the way, we just relaunched. It's called the Dealmaker Blueprint Training. And part of that is what we have a Dealmaker certification, which is really cool. So it's not just an online course, but it's a 12-month experience basically to get you ready to do your first deal on your own. So that's uh, that's just, just everything was redone. You know, I have slightly more gray hair in the videos than I did five years ago when we first did it. And so that's uh, dealmakercertification.com. But so the one you were talking about was called The Ultimate Guide to Buying Apartment Buildings. But then you actually, so you get did you taught yourself and you went through the course and then you started calling on properties in Memphis and you engaged with us when you had an 80 unit that you found in Memphis. Uh, talk to us uh, about that entire experience. Yeah, that was, you know, number one, I followed, you know, I watched all your videos and so, and so on, and I followed all your scripts. And to my amazement, I found, I found a property on, on LoopNet, you know, it seemed to work well. And, you know, I remember getting kind of anxious to, to get in touch with you <laughs> to see how, you know, we, if, if there was an opportunity to, to partner because, you know, it was, it was a, a good deal on, on, on paper. Use your scripts, did the underwriting, started to speak to a, a property manager. Um, I had the, the opportunity, you know, for me it was out of state, but, you know, during a business trip, I was able to go to Memphis, take a look at the property by myself, meet our, our property manager there, and we placed an offer. And actually, the uh, the owner showed up. You know, when I, I first uh, walked the property, and uh, so you know, I think uh, for them it was it was important to put a face on a, on a potential buyer. And um, yeah, we were able to to close that deal. You know, after a few months, you know, I think it worked it worked out pretty well. Yeah, it did. And you got a nice acquisition fee and you got your first deal because it didn't take you long. And you brought us uh, Dogwood, I think, Dogwood Trace uh, right right, right after that. And that was a substantially bigger deal. It was 168 units. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, it, was, it was interesting. It was a deal. You know, we started to look at while we're working on, on uh, um, this Cooper property, the first property. You know, we made an offer, we placed an offer, but we were on the, the, the second offer. And actually, I think it was, we placed a, an offer while it was under contract already. You know, it was like a backup offer, you know, just in case we said, it looks good, this deal, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's make this backup offer. We never know. And the same day, believe it or not, the same day we closed on the first deal, I see like somebody from Memphis calling me and I assume it was our, our property manager to, to talk about some, some details, but it was the broker for uh, Dogwood Trace was calling me and saying that the deal, you know, the, the first contract was falling off. Make sure to, to brush up your, your offer letter, your LOI letter of intent and uh, send it over again because there, there are, you know, chances that, that you'll, you'll be able to get that deal under contract. So you put a lot of sticks in the fire because that's, I mean, that's a really good point is keeping the, that many sticks in the fire at one time, even if you don't know if things are going to pop out, that's often how you, you know, will find yourself in some interesting situations with profitable deals. So it sounds like that's what you did. You kind of, you had a bunch of sticks in there and then you, you maybe weren't expecting it and something just came to fruition. Has there any been another time where maybe something like that has happened? You've been surprised something came out of nowhere and you're like, man, that, that worked out. Yeah, I think what the most important experience, personal experience 
that I gained from working, you know, and being in that, you know, working with you guys, working with other people, going to other events and meet people, is that I started to build relationships. And then, you know, after this first couple of deals, it's thanks to these relationships that I was able to, you know, either be a co-sponsor on other deals or work with some partners. And, you know, it gave me the ability to scale up from there. That was the uh, the idea. You know, I didn't necessarily place, you know, a lot of offers and a lot of deals. But, you know, I think it's the relationships that I build, you know, with other groups that allowed me to, to make a lot of progress. It's like you open the first door and you didn't know what else was on the other side. And then all these other doors opened up. And that's that's pretty much how a lot of this business goes, right? Like you took a leap of faith. You went into this network and... You open one door, the law of the first deal kicked in. You got a second one, 168 unit uh, that just popped out of nowhere, which I think is. I think it's a good way of saying it, Gary. Is, is we'll keep walking through open doors because because a lot of a lot of people self sabotage themselves because they're afraid of success. I know it sounds weird, but for example, I know uh, people who've you know not made any offers because they were afraid it might get accepted. Because they're afraid of what might happen after that, which means that they might not raise the money so they can't close. So in their mind, they're like playing these massive what-if scenarios. And so they're not making offers. And the mentor is like, why aren't you making offers? And they do a bunch of other stuff. They self-sabotage themselves. Others try to resist the law of the first deal. I remember I remember who it, who it was, doesn't matter, but they had just done a first deal. And literally the day later, they got a second deal where their offer was, was accepted. And they're like, oh, I, I'm not going to do my second deal right now. Let me just stabilize my first, you know? And the mentor's like, no, you keep moving through doors. And that's that's really the thing is just keep moving through doors. Now, you don't want to do anything imprudent, but most times it's not doing something imprudent. It's simply your mind holding you back from something. Because there's a reason there's a, an open door. Like, I, I know, call it what you, what you want. It, to me, if, if a bunch of doors are shutting in my face and I'm an entrepreneur, I'll try to figure out how to get around or knock it down. But at one point, you got you to gotta stand back going, okay, I am, I am trying to force something that maybe is not supposed to happen. And I've gotten better at trying to distinguish between one and the other. But when a door's opening, you just keep mobbing through it. And Philip, that's exactly what you did is you just, you just walk through that second door. And, and why do you think, let me ask you, why do you think that law of the first deal worked for you, right? Because you're closing on Cooper Young and all of a sudden, boom, you get a much bigger deal falling in your lap. Like why, why does that happen? Why does that law of the first deal work? I think it's, it's um, you know, after a while, you know, when you realize it's, you always have to work on a backup plan, right? And I think, you know, and, and I think it's exactly what you, you just mentioned earlier. You know, the backup plan, because, you know, it's, let's say you work, you focus on one on one deal. And, you know, I was focusing on my on my uh, first deal, you know, the 80 units. But at the same time, you know, what if, what if it doesn't go through at the end for X, Y, Z reason? And I think it's good, you know, from that standpoint, start working on something else, you know, just in case. And then, you know, you, you don't have this big gap between what you're doing, like several deals. You, you know, I think it, it makes sense to always have something, something cooking. And, uh, you know, it's like when you, you, you work on, on a, uh, a three-course meal, right? And, and, you know, you can do the different, you know, the timing of the different dishes is going to be different. You know, I guess, you know, hopefully you're not going to fail on one of your 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 dishes that you prepare. But if if you have several things in work, you increase the the possibility of success and uh you know always have a backup plan. That's 
a lesson learned that I, I, I would uh, gladly share. Michael, this, this reminds me of the time where we won two deals on the same day <laughs> in different areas of the country. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. did. I listen, Philippe. I do the same exact thing. I put as many sticks as in as I, I can. You can't control and, and the timing sometimes, right? You, you, you can't, can't. But we had, we had two deals that were literally running at the same time. Like I was offering on this one, offering on this one. One guy took two months to make a decision. The other guy, I thought I staggered him right, and then they ended up hitting on the same day. One of both, were like, oh no, <laughs> you know what? But. It was a good thing. At the end of the day, it was it was really good that the, you know the amount of and the way we navigated out of it was interesting. But that's really this game in general, and I think I think this topic is really important because that gap, like you said, Philippe, it's very real. And you could just be sitting around like doing nothing for a while because you didn't take enough action in the beginning to get you know enough things lined up for sure. Let me ask you something, Philippe. Uh, I mean, people are wondering, because you bought us an 80 unit deal. And now when you actually called the broker, when you actually you know put an offer in, you had not brought that deal to us. So it's not like you and I had a conversation. And we're like, oh yes, Philippe, you, we'll take care of you. Don't worry, right? I mean, what gave you the confidence to make an offer on that property, not necessarily knowing how the heck you're going to close on it? I acted as if, you know, in that particular case, and, you know, obviously it was not necessarily uh, an ideal position to be in, but, you know, basically I said, well, you know, I'm working with this group, which was Nighthawk. And, uh, you know, obviously you, you didn't have yet told me that you were going to, to work with me, but, you know, I acted like, like if you were going to work with me, you know, I, I was like, going to go through and everything was going to fall in line. So I said, I know this group, I'm partnering with them. And that's how I placed, I placed the, the, the offer like that. Now the risk was that I would have won the, the deal. And then, you know, you would have told me, oh, you know, by the way, the deal doesn't look good. So I was taking a little bit of a, of a leap of faith there. You know, I think it worked out because, you know, again, I, I followed whatever you know, is in the course and all, all the steps. And I was very confident in the quality of what I was bringing to the table. And that, you know, the chances of, if not partnering with you, I could have easily found another partner, you know, of the same magnitude who, who, who would be able to help me close on the deal. You know, I interviewed Gina Wickman a little while back. He's the author of Traction and Rocket Fuel, you know, sold millions of books, but he had this other book called The Entrepreneurial Leap. And in it, he postulates that entrepreneurs are born, not made. In other words, you're either an entrepreneur or you're not, all right? And I'm wondering, do you consider yourself or did you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Because you're talking about taking calculated risks, possibly multi-million dollar risks. And I'm just wondering, did you feel that you were an entrepreneur or or or, I mean, how did you feel at the, at the time? Yeah, certainly if I wasn't an entrepreneur, like I think I was, I was putting myself in that, in that position, you know, did they, you know, it was probably unconscious, in, in you know, I, I don't think I, I, I was like, yeah, you know, now I'm going to be like a business and I'm going to do this and this. I was more in a position, see here, you know, there's a recipe of steps that I can take to make a successful venture. And, you know, the odds are that I'm going to, it's going to work out. So if that's a definition of an entrepreneur, so then, then yes, but I don't think I was not necessarily thinking in those terms. And this is what I love about the multifamily syndication thing. It is a business and you have to be an entrepreneur, but the bar is lower. 
the risk is lower. I mean, imagine opening up any other business in the world. You would need seed capital or angel investing. And then the probability of actual success is remote because like 90% of businesses fail in five years. Well, multifamily syndication business, like I don't know what the stats are, Garrett, but I'm sure like 99% succeed, <laughs> you know? You have you have so many factors moving your direction that help. I mean, you're you're getting your, the cash flow, obviously, with appreciation and combination. You got the loan. You know, the, you got the loan, you the, the debt. Like think of think about anyone if they want to go open like a a cookie store or something. They got to dump two hundred grand into a storefront property with a with a lease that's probably personally guaranteed and like just whatever the other options. Like even if you go on like biz buy sell and you look at that, you're like that's not as attractive as multifamily like the pet business that they started or whatever it is, you know. And there's a lot of that out there, so it's just it's such a with all those factors that, that come into play, especially the tax savings and everything. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an amazing it's, business to get into it. It really is staggering. I'm like, great way to transition yeah. from your job. Like you probably identified with, you know, being that W2 employee, but you could make the transition over and be like, Oh, you know what? I actually, I think differently now. I think like an entrepreneur, I was able to get into that because of this medium of business. Yeah. One of the things that you brought Philippe at the time, because you always have to bring something of value to a partnership. Otherwise, why would someone want to partner you? I mean, maybe, you know, maybe your good looks, I don't know, possibly, but you're bringing something of value. And at that point, it was hustle and you brought it, you handed us a deal on a silver platter. Now, we encourage you to raise money. And I think you actually ended up raising money, uh, some of it. But, but that was what you brought to the table. Now, others are bringing maybe some, some investors to the table. They don't have a deal, but they maybe have some investors. And this is why partnerships can work so well. Now, over time, though, Philippe, you started developing the art and science of raising capital. Talk to us about about that a little bit. Yeah, it's you know, it's I think it, it goes to for, for me like a pivotal moment. You kind of alluded to to that earlier. A pivotal moment in my real estate career was, you know, a fairly large deal that didn't materialize, and you know that deal, you know, basically the, the equity partner bailed out, and you know we had we had a lot of uh, Money in online on the deal, and and again, it didn't it didn't work out, and that's where you know I decided to kind of pivot a little bit uh, towards again, you know, thanks to the partnerships I built through time, I became co-sponsor on other deals. Mm-hmm. So I shifted from you know deal finder, you know, putting deals to together to you know later in, in my in the more recent years to be like co-sponsor and more focusing on on you know assisting with due diligence and bringing some some investors to to the table and thanks to my first couple of deals that I started to build my friends and family network and then through time I met other people you know events meetups etc so I was able to to grow my network that way yeah, and that's how I became, you know, eventually general partner in, in 1,400 units. Um, yeah, so it's interesting, right? Again, you're bringing something of value to when you say co-sponsor, you are playing a role in a, some, in a general partnership somehow. So maybe what's some of your advice to someone who wants to do that? And I think it's a smart thing to do because, you know, it's very rare that you are doing everything in a syndication. Typically, the syndications consist of joint ventures or partnerships. Those seem to be, uh, seems to work the best, but you have certain strengths and certain weaknesses 
So what is it that you feel like you were bringing to the table strengths and, and obviously the other GPs saw value in that, but what are some of your advice around approaching other operators and becoming a successful co-sponsor? Well, you know, I think for any any operators, when they begin, they are going to need some help to raise capital. You know, it's it's unusual that they'll, they'll be able in a position to raise capital, all the capital by themselves. So there's an opportunity during the first few years of like upcoming uh, operators that, you know, they need help. And, you know, so, so you can bring to the table, again, like past experience and, you know, help them on due diligence and help them qualify the deal. But then, you know, if that works out, you can say, well, you know, let me assist you bring some of my investors to the table to help you close on the deal. Again, like the, the advice is, you know, build relationships, you know, go through events and, uh, you know, meet other people and, and see, you know, talk to people, always be on the, on the lookout for, for people working on some deals and, you know, just say, well, you know, I raised such and such, or, you know, I did such and such uh, due diligence activities or put money at risk, you know, whatever it is on a deal and see, you know, can I help you fill any gap you have? So, it's really interesting. And, and I, I ask more, like I've always gone into these deals with partners. I, you know, I tread a little bit lately. It sounds like you've been able to identify people that maybe need what you have. How do you get, how do you go about that discovery? So when you, when you get it, let's say you meet someone at a meetup or whatever, you're like, Hey, like, like what, what is that process to figure out? Hey, could we, could I partner with these people? I think it's, it's really like opportunistic. If you, you think about it, you know, it's like the, the opportunity being, you know, you, you talk to people and, you know, when you say, well, you know, what are you working on right now? And they tell you, well, you know, I'm working on a 40 units in in uh, in this place. And that's that's where you can say, well, you know, how is it going? You know, do you need some help? It's as simple as that, you know. You know, I think you have to think about, is it going to be like a, a one-off type of, of, of a partnership? Or is it like a long-term partnership? And you know, in, in in many cases, you know, there are a lot of deals. You know, they, if you look at the general partnership, it's a different team of people each time. So it's more like deal by deal. You know, it's like an opportunity by opportunity that you have a group of people coming together. And then it's true for on each side. You know, it's like some groups they work, they have like integrated teams, and it's always like the same team. And some other people, they work with different people all the time. So I would say like the prerequisite, and I kind of maybe missed, missed that, but, you know, you have to know, obviously, a little bit of the background of, of the different people that I wouldn't say like just meet some random people and, and say, well, let's partner. You know, it's like the link for me between the different deals, it was, you know, maybe there was a senior partner who was the link between two different deals, two different groups. And I use that senior partner as, okay, well, you know, I worked with that senior partner and if he's working with these other guys, I know he has good ethics and so on. And I'm going to use that senior partner as the link. You know, those guys are, are, are vetted and then I can partner with them. It's a good point though, because another advantage of multifamily syndications is that you, these are relatively short-term partnerships. 
And in the beginning for us, we also had the, the makeup of the GPs were different every single time. And that was okay at the time because it made it work. We needed certain different things at different times. And that's just the way you, you scale. And, you know, the worst case scenario, you do a partnership with someone. But the good news is the exit is already built in. It's a sale in five years. In fact, it's in the business plan, right? So if, if you don't see eye to eye, there's a divorce already in the future. And the terms are already pre-negotiated. It's like a prenup. You know, it's fantastic. On the other hand, then, you know, you do start now, you know, doing business with people and you like people and you trust people. And then you maybe form more permanent relationships, right? And that's kind of, you know, where we ended up in, in Nighthawk. But we didn't start out that way as well. Because, you know, you're on the same page and it works, but it doesn't have to be that way, certainly in the beginning. Now, you mentioned something slash glossed over the fact that you um, got a little bit of a black eye on an, on an equity deal that you did. What are some of the lessons learned from that? And not just exactly from what happened, like don't deal with private equity, but what are some other lessons that you know, talk about to the degree you're comfortable talking about what happened there? But, you know, what are some of the lessons that you took away from from that? You know, what, what happened is, you know, it, it was a large deal and, you know, basically to make that deal work and, and I'm talking, you know, I think it was uh, more than $30 million to make that deal work. It was making sense to bring an equity partner and, you know, basically, you know, equity partner is first you have your lender, then you have private group of people who was bringing money from different places. It could be uh, family offices. It could be uh, uh, an insurance company, etc. And, you know, they come with additional terms, their own terms. So it's, it's almost, it's somewhat similar to an additional loan, but it's not really an additional loan. They're really like a very hard loan to get. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And basically, you know, thanks, thanks to, to this structure, you can increase, improve the returns on your own syndication. What happened to us is, is at the last minute, the equity partner bailed out. And basically, they were looking like really for institutional grade investors. You know, we didn't have like a, a fixed team. You know, we didn't have an office. You know, we're working deal by deal, as you, you mentioned earlier. You know, I, I kind of, I mentioned it earlier. I was like, have a backup plan. You know, unfortunately, we only had one an institutional investor lined up at the time. And, you know, the, the worst part is that they bailed on us at the last minute, you know, basically weeks uh, before closing. And, you know, we were stuck, you know, we didn't have time to, to, to change, to shift gears. And, you know, I think when, one of the issues, you know, besides having a backup solution. All right. So what lesson did you take away from that experience? You know, number one, always have a backup plan, you know, in case of, somebody is, is bailing out on you, you know, it's like when you start, you know, when you, you're down close to the closing date and that's when the, uh, this partner, equity partner bailed out on us, you know, we, we had money, hard money on the deal. So without a backup solution, you know, it didn't give us enough time to shift gears. And unfortunately, so we didn't go through. The second thing is what happened is we were the first to try this strategy, this structure with our partners. And that was not necessarily a good, a good situation, a, a comfortable situation to be in, because at the end of the day, the equity partner, they were looking for a, a more institutional grade type of, of GPs on the deal. That's why they, they bailed out. But on a positive note, this structure to use institutional investors in a deal, you know, it's a sound business plan. Now we know several groups who did 
close on some deals. And as far as I know, it's working pretty well. It's a good solution to, to consider, but, you know, just have to make sure that you have a backup solution. And now, you know, you wouldn't be necessarily like the first to do this, you know, with, let's say, in our, in our network. Philippe, this resonates a lot with me, actually. Actually, I'm sure Michael as well. But we've actually done something similar. Went after the low-hanging fruit of institutional equity because you can get one big check and then you're done. And then you get into it and you realize that, oh, there's a lot of red tape. And a big part of that is your track record as a group and the stuff that you've done together. And if, especially with new partnerships, which kind of we were at the time, it put us into a, a really tough spot where with the same thing, they can pull the plug on the equity and all of a sudden you're left holding the bag and they don't have any recourse on them. And so I definitely, that you know did happen before and resonate with that. So when you talk about backup, what do you mean? How do you create a backup for a situation like that where you're you're in kind of a bind or and I'm sure other people have gotten into tough situations like that, but what what is your idea of what that is? Well, if you're going to structure the deal where there is a uh, um, institutional investor, you know, private equity, I think the backup is to have another private equity group who is willing to work with you. Because, you know, again, it goes back to the structure and, you know, you're going to work with the lender and they will have, you know, they're going to, to look at how you structure the deal on your side. So, so there will be several parameters. There will be also your, your own syndication. And so, so if this middle layer of, of the institutional investors, if you can take one and substitute it for another one, you should be fine. Or this is a good lesson too. Or you can raise uh, like we normally do and have that as a backup also. Yeah. Let people Absolutely. know that. The, that, know, that was our that debrief from our, from our thing. We did not have a, a, plan, a backup. Also, because it was probably too big for us and we probably couldn't have raised it. <laughs> so this is the, the risk. And I've, I've asked around with some of our peers and, you know, this access to, you know, almost free money with private equity groups. These new relationships are very risky. What apparently has worked better is if you do it on a deal where you don't need the private equity and you make it your plan A, but you can raise it if it uh, goes south. And that gives you that that plan B because I think that deal, Philippe, was pretty darn big, and it would have been uh, a challenge to raise capital for that. So you know, this is an example where we all go through some of these experiences and you know, get a little bit of a black eye, and we kind of retrace a little bit and we keep on going. And you certainly kept on going, and you uh, you eventually decided that uh, that you wanted to mentor others, and so that's when we started a conversation around you coming on board and, uh, and helping others do their first deal. So what, what was behind that, Philippe? Why did you feel that that was a, a good idea and something you want to do next? Well, you know, it's, uh, my, my background is, is, uh, is in aviation. You know, I worked for, for 20 years for an aircraft manufacturing company. You know, however, you know, what happened last year, the COVID situation, you know, which was at, at the end of, uh, you know, the other crisis and, and so on in the past, you know, led to some, to some layoffs and, you know, I quit my job. It wasn't my, my decision necessarily. You know, I, I was, I, I you know, certainly loved my, my job, but yeah, it was the, the company was doing, was doing bad. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad I had the real estate lined up that I had starting slowly, but surely to build through the years. 
you know, and, you know, I said to everybody and my wife, you know, and I said, you know, let's, I, I want to give it a shot, you know, do this full time now, you know, I can do this full time. I know I can, you know, I have enough experience that I, I can, I can, you know, shift gears and go away from the corporate job and working, you know, being in the rat race, etc., and, you know, be more like in, in control of my own destiny. So that's, that's how I, I decided to do this full time and share my experience. You know, I worked, you know, basically in a, in a pilot seat on, on several deals on from the acquisition to asset management, you know, and including like uh, raising money and so on uh, with partners, obviously. But, you know, I'm in a position to share my experience with other people. And actually, I had started uh, a little bit of that when I was on the, the deal desk for a few months, a few years ago, the uh, uh, maybe you can probably explain that a little bit, but, uh, you know, I was, I coached a, a student then for the acquisition of 40 units uh, in Alabama. So that was my first experience as a coach, but, you know, I, I resumed doing the coaching last year. Yeah. And you, you, you enjoy it. Oh yes. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's very, you know, you know, I'm happy to share what I've learned, you know, because again, you know, I, I, I've really believed that's, that's a way to go if you want to be autonomous, you know, to have like financial freedom. I, I've done it and I think I, I'm, I feel very confident, you know, I can help people and, and, you know, hopefully all my students, they're happy. They, you know, I know, I know they are, they're, tell, they're telling me uh, that they are, but, uh, you know, I help them hold their hands, you know, to go through the steps it's always, you know, again, you know, when when I did it, my, I did my first deal, it was a particular situation. But I think in, in retrospect, you know, I certainly could have used a, a coach like throughout and, you know, walk me through the first deal and so on. It's very easy to make some mistakes. You know, we just mentioned, you know, this, this failed deal, you know, had I had a, a coach, you know, I'm sure he would have told me, stop this deal, you know, stop being, it's too late before it's too late, you know, look for a backup solution. You know, it was certainly an expensive mistake there. Have so, you know, like the coach is somebody who is going to take a look with a, a, a kind of a critic eye on a deal. And, you know, believe me, recently I spoke, you know, I had one student, he had an, an LOI accepted. He was very excited. He said, oh, I said, that's, that's great. Let's take a look at your deal. Because for some reason, you know, I'm not sure why, but he, he didn't show me the uh, the underwriting. And then we went through the underwriting. You know, he sell, himself he said, "Well, you know, maybe I, uh, you know, I went I went a little bit too quickly on underwriting this deal, and you know, I, I don't think I, I'm going to pursue it." If you have somebody who can tell you that you know you trust, and who can tell you like you're wrong in the you're going in the wrong direction, you know, I think that's that's very it's very helpful. I think. Well, I'm glad you're on board and, and sharing your experience. Uh, so I'm glad you're doing that. How can people uh, find out more about you, Philippe? They can go on, on my website, 555ventures.com. So three times the uh, number five, ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com. Or email me directly. And you, know, you, can, you can contact me through the website. Actually, I have a uh, comparison between single family and multifamily. Uh, spreadsheet that I, I share on the website. And otherwise, my email address is philippe at 555ventures.com and philippe spells P-H-I-L-I-P-P-E. Yeah. And if you'd like to work directly with uh, Philippe as a, as a mentor, 
Uh, you can uh, schedule a call at the emichaelblank.com forward slash mentor, and you'll have a call with one of our strategy consultants and see if mentoring is right for you. And uh, like Philippe said, it might be a way for you to accelerate your goals and prevent some of the bigger mistakes. So if that is for you, check us out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And Philippe, I want to thank you for being on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Gareth. I, one of the things I love about Philippe is like he had a setback and I was not completely close. Uh, I was not an advisor on this deal that went south, but he got a pretty black eye. And, uh, you know, you just alluded that you and I had a pretty big black eye as well for similar reasons where we went after a deal that was slightly too big and we didn't have a backup. I think the big takeaway from, from that is, I mean, there's a lot of variables that go into these and knowing what your strengths are. When you want to induce a new variable, make sure that it's as achievable as possible. And if you are, and it's, it's a potentially big risk, like we were talking about, try to have that, that backup plan or at least talk to someone that can put you on the right direction for the backup. Uh, it's very easy to go blindly into the space of institutional equity. It seems like this amazing realm where you can just meet the right guy, make a handshake and they cut you a check and then you get into it and you're like, oh man, this I don't know if it was going to be this easy. Yeah. The other thing for us, for example, is, you know, trying to do a 506C. It's something we have not done yet. We've all done 506B, which of course opens up the universe to non-accredited investors. 506C uh, does not, but allows you to market. Uh, so for example, we would not do a 506C for a deal that is at the very edge of our money raise capacity because we're not 100% sure we can pull it off. You know, do we have enough accredited investors to pull it off? So in other words, if we're going to try a variable, like you just said, we would try on a smaller deal that maybe is 50 or 60% of what we know we can raise because we know we can get that done. Therefore, introducing a new variable into the business and then testing it out. Yeah. And, and this can be on any level. I mean, it doesn't just have to be related to equity. It can be on the debt side. If you're trying to make a leap from an asset, let's say your last deal you bought was a 20 unit and you're going to go for a 300 unit. Okay. Well, that induces a whole list of new variables, new partners that have to come in, new equity sources. And so while there is this amazing thing called the law of the first deal, where you get a two unit and you jump to a 150, a lot of times if that's happening, there's there's got to be some really strong players in place and the variables have already been worked out previously before you're getting into something like that. So well, it's very unusual to go from two to 150. And and I think we saw the shiny object going after this large deal. It was like 500 unit portfolio. And we're like, man, we're going to go after this. We're going to put, going to put us on the map. I remember some of that. I think our egos got the best of ourselves, uh, best of it us a little like, bit. Well, you guys, you guys had done like maybe like a deal that was, to, I don't know, the highest one was like six or 7 million. And this one was, I think like 30 or something. So there was, there was a large, it was huge. It was, it was a large it was gap huge. and I'm, and I'm banging the phones around Christmas time. Like we, we launched it at like, like the day before Christmas, which is like everybody's gone from the world. So there was a lot of, a lot of challenges that came with that, but a lot of lessons too. You know, I think introducing one variable at a time is probably good counsel, no matter what stage you're in, whether it's a new partner or a new kind of deal, new size of deal, new kind of loan product or anything like that. You know, new relationships in particular are very risky. And I think that's what Philippe found. And that's also what we found as well is if you're going to rely on a major relationship that's untried, that may not be the highest probability to play. So that is definitely a key takeaway for all of us. And, and the other thing also for, uh, for in Philippe's case is he was not afraid to go after a bigger deal, an 80 unit, really not knowing directly how he's going to close on it, but feeling like if he can get a deal 
on a silver platter. He's going to find some senior operator who wants it. And he's right, because we're constantly looking for high quality deals. And the, the secret to that is knowing what your senior partner is looking for. Where are they looking? What size? What are some of the requirements? And he knew some of that because of our deal desk process, which is part of this, this course that he was talking about, the dealmaker certification. You kind of get to know what we're looking for, but it doesn't have to be us. It's any senior partner. And he talked about relationships a lot also, is in his relationships, when you come to those senior partners, ask them, what are they looking for? Maybe have two or three of those kinds of conversations. So when you come across a deal like that, there's a higher probability that that partner might be interested in a deal. With that, this whole business is really about risk reward, right? So like, what risk are you taking for the reward that you're going to, you're going to get? And the way that you lower that risk is by investing in what, what we're talking about is relational capital, right? So you're making relationships with people that allow you to lower the risk of you doing a bad deal, essentially. And so and so by having the right people around you and knowing what they want, knowing what you can bring, you're going to essentially increase your value and the ability to do these kind of deals. Yeah, absolutely right. So partnering is a, is a key way to get into the game. And Philippe has done a variety of different partners. He's been uh, looking for different ways to get into it. And he has done that. Uh, by the way, so if you are interested in investing in these multifamily syndications we're talking about, we'd love to have a conversation with you at nighthawkequity.com. Just click the join button there and you can have a conversation with us and, uh, and to see if investing with us is a, a fit for you. And if so, then we'd be happy to share with you some of the opportunities that we're working on right now. And uh, so head on over to nighthawkequity.com and click the join button to have that conversation. So again, I enjoyed uh, spending time with you, Garrett. Thanks for being here. Guys, catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.